The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Building Real-World Bridges Between Clinicians and Patients with Myeloma, Guidance on Innovative Antibody Options. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash jpj860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Building Real-World Bridges Between Clinicians and Patients with Myeloma. My name is Dr. Bob Orlowski. I'm the head of the myeloma section at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And it's a great pleasure for me to welcome two wonderful panelists. One is Dr. Peter Voorhees from the Levine Cancer Institute in North Carolina, and also Jennifer Alstrom, who in addition to being a myeloma patient herself, is also an internationally recognized patient advocate, as well as entrepreneur in the myeloma setting and founder of Health Tree for multiple myeloma, which is used by many myeloma patients. Today, our focus is going to be on one of the more exciting aspects of myeloma care that's developed over the past decade, and in particular, the emergence, validation, and continuing development of antibody-based therapies. Throughout our discussion, we'll rely on some cases to explore how we're using especially CD38 and BCMA targeting antibodies in our practice, and also illustrate the centrality of the patient voice in deciding modern clinical care. During this program, we will periodically share several resources that will summarize take-home messages from our discussion and also provide you with some useful resources to share with patients. So do please take a moment to download these tools before we get started. Let's begin. This slide gives you an overview of some of the developments in terms of novel antibodies in myeloma since 2015, and they've really, I think, made a huge difference in enhanced patient outcomes. Starting in 2015, we saw the approvals of the first antibodies, which were daratumumab, an anti-CD38 antibody, which was approved as a single agent, and elotuzumab, which we won't cover a lot about in this presentation, but is still a very active drug, and that's an antibody that recognizes SLAMF7 and is used predominantly in combination with immunomodulatory drugs. Later on, some of these antibodies were tried in earlier settings, and we were able to get approval of one new CD38 targeting antibody, including isatuximab, and also daratumumab-based combinations were approved in earlier lines of therapy. And the previous antibodies had all been given intravenously, but there was the development of a subcutaneous version of daratumumab, which really improves patient convenience and also reduces, as you'll see later, the incidence of infusion or injection reactions. And then most recently, last year, there was an expanded approval for isatuximab, and we had the development and approval of the first BCMA targeting antibody, which is belantamab mafidotin. 
And I think that we're going to discuss throughout this session some of the future developments, including more evidence for CD38 antibodies, such as potentially using them in quadruplet combinations. The future may be of expanded use of BCMA-targeting antibody drug conjugates, and also talking about BCMA by specifics, which we don't have approved yet, but we hope soon to have, perhaps even later in this calendar year. Let's just start with an overview about how CD38 antibodies work. You probably remember that myeloma cells are CD38 positive, so they express this protein on their surface and antibodies that bind to CD38 work through a number of mechanisms. First of all, the enzymatic activity of CD38 is important to myeloma cell survival, and binding of both daratumumab and isatuximab inhibits that activity, which by itself can be toxic to myeloma cells, but also the fact that these antibodies attach to the cell surface leads to activation of other immune effector cell-based mechanisms, which include things like complement-dependent cytotoxicity. There's also antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity and antibody-dependent cellular phagocytosis. Finally, there are data suggesting that daratumumab in particular, but also isatuximab, can work by modulating the immune microenvironment. One example is potentially reducing immunosuppressive T regulatory cells. And so in some ways, what that does is take the breaks off the immune system in the bone marrow. Now, belantamab mafodotin, which we sometimes abbreviate as Belamaf, is a different creature, if you will, because this is the first drug in the myeloma setting that works as what's called an antibody drug conjugate. Here, in addition to the antibody, you have an attached drug, and one of the major ways that Belamaf works is that when the drug binds to the BCMA on the myeloma cell surface, the drug is taken up inside the cell, and the drug which is linked to the belantamab is released by digestion, and it's an antimicrotubule agent, so it stops the division of the myeloma cells and induces cell death. So kind of like a Trojan horse where the myeloma cell unsuspectingly takes up this molecule and it results in death from the inside. In addition, like DARA and ISA for CD38, there also is some antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity and phagocytosis, which occurs. Finally, we'll talk a little bit about bispecific antibodies, and the way that these are designed is that most antibodies, as you probably remember, have two binding sites. In the example of daratumumab, both of the binding sites bind to CD38. But you can divine an antibody where one arm binds to a myeloma cell surface protein and another arm binds to, for example, a T cell, and that causes T cell activation and the activated angry T cells then kill the nasty evil myeloma cell. 
So there are a few different constructs that can be used and the figure on this slide shows you a couple of different ways that this can be done, including with a so-called byte or bispecific T-cell engager on the left or on the right, a so-called duobody. But both of these are ways to essentially utilize the patient's own T-cells in the attack against their multiple myeloma. One thing to keep in mind is that despite progress with newer therapeutics, challenges really do remain to delivering effective therapies. And part of this is because of the concept of therapeutic attrition. And the data quoted in this particular slide were based on an assessment of 22,000 patients with myeloma who were not eligible for stem cell transplant. And the authors found that 57% of these patients received only one line of therapy. Among the 2,700 patients who received stem cell transplant, 21% received only one line of therapy. And so this really argues for the need to get the most effective therapies in as early as possible. There also are challenges in multi-refractory disease, and in particular for patients that have anti-CD38 myeloma refractory disease. And in this real-world class analysis, what was found is that 35% of patients with triple-class refractory disease did not receive a new line of therapy. And you can see from the graphs that among these patients, the progression-free as well as overall survival was inferior. Let's again cover the point about starting with potent antibody therapy and loop in shared decision-making for multiple myeloma. So we'll start off with a case, which is of Richard, a 70-year-old patient with myeloma who presents with revised international staging system stage two disease. He has symptomatic disease, standard risk cytogenetics. He has some hypertension, but it's well-controlled. Functional status is good, and he is open to discussions on pursuing aggressive therapy. And in the presentation, we'll cover a number of different discussion items. And at this point, what I'll do is I'll turn it over to Dr. Voorhees for an overview of options in the newly diagnosed setting. So thank you so much. Um, the first thing I'm going to do is talk about the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines for the treatment of newly diagnosed uh, patients with multiple myeloma who are considered autologous stem cell transplant candidates. And what you can see here is that there are four different regimens, all of which have lenalidomide or Revlimid and dexamethasone uh, as part of the backbone, and a third drug, which is a proteasome inhibitor, which may be either bortezomib or velcade, carfilzomib or kyprolis, or ixazomib or ninlaro, I do want to point out here that there is an additional regimen here, which is a four-drug regimen that includes lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, and the CD38 antibody uh, daratumumab, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. So the first thing I'd like to do is just uh, give you guys um, you know, a, a general sense of how patients are doing these days in the modern era of multiple myeloma therapy. And this is the Emory University experience of their first 1,000 patients that were treated with lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. 
the majority of these patients did receive a frontline autologous stem cell transplant, and the majority of them had also uh, received maintenance therapy after recovery uh, from that stem cell transplant. And what you can see here on the upper portion of the slide is that the median progression-free survival for the entire group was 68.7 months, and the median overall survival was close to 129 months. So overall, patients are doing far better than they have in the past with this basic construct. So the first randomized study that I'd like to discuss is Cassiopeia. This is a phase three study that looked at the bortezomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone backbone for transplant-eligible multiple myeloma patients with or without daratumumab. So patients were randomly assigned to receive standard VTD versus VTD plus daratumumab for four induction cycles. Everybody went on to autologous stem cell transplant. Those assigned to the DARA arm received two cycles of DARA-VTD consolidation. Those in the control arm received two cycles of VTD consolidation. There was then a second randomization where patients were either assigned to no maintenance therapy or daratumumab given once every uh, eight weeks for a total of two years. And the primary endpoint of the study was progression-free survival. Now, what you can see here is that there was a progression-free survival benefit observed for all people who received daratumumab as part of their uh, initial therapy. So whether you got daratumumab as part of your induction and consolidation or maintenance therapy or both, you did very well from a progression-free survival perspective compared to those that just received bortezomib thalidomide and dexamethasone without maintenance therapy one interesting observation from this trial is that those patients that received daratumumab, bortezomib thalidomide, and dexamethasone without maintenance therapy actually did just as well from a progression-free survival perspective as those that received daravtd followed by daratumumab maintenance therapy. So one of the criticisms of Cassiopeia is that half of the patients were randomized to no maintenance therapy uh, the other criticism is that thalidomide has been replaced in many parts of the world with a newer generation immunomodulatory drug called lenalidomide. So the Griffin trial was a randomized phase two study that looked at the lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone backbone with or without daratumumab, again for newly diagnosed transplant-eligible multiple myeloma patients. Patients that were assigned to standard of care received four cycles of induction RVD therapy, transplant, two cycles of lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone consolidation, and then they went on to lenalidomide maintenance therapy. The experimental arm, which included daratumumab, incorporated daratumumab into the induction therapy, the consolidation therapy after transplant, and for the first two years of maintenance therapy. Patients were encouraged to stay on single-agent lenalidomide uh, beyond uh, two years. And the primary endpoint of the study was stringent complete response by the end of consolidation after transplant. And what you can see here on this slide is that for those patients that received four drug therapy initially, had a stringent complete response rate of 42% at the end of consolidation, in contrast to 32% for those that received the triplet, and that was statistically significant. Now, with longer follow-up and after patients had all received two years of maintenance therapy, the stringent complete response rate increased to 66%, so two-thirds of patients for those that received four drug therapy, in contrast to 47% for those that received three drug therapy, and this was highly statistically significant. Now, 
When we look at minimal residual disease testing, what you can see here on the left-hand side of the slide is that whether you measure sustained MRD negativity for at least six months or for at least 12 months, you had a higher rate of MRD negativity in the four-drug arm versus three-drug arm. So 44% of patients who received four-drug therapy had sustained MRD negativity lasting at least one year, in contrast to only 13% for those that received the triplet. And this appears to be uh, emerging into an improvement in progression-free survival. And what you can see here on the right-hand side of the slide is that the three-year progression-free survival rate for those that received four-drug therapy was close to 90%, in contrast to approximately 80% for those that received three-drug therapy. And this is beginning to uh, um, achieve uh, or coming close to achieve statistical significance. And hopefully we'll see the final analysis of this study uh, later this year. So when we looked at patient subgroups, what you can see here is that the majority of patients seem to benefit from the four-drug therapy versus the three-drug therapy with regards to progression-free survival, whether you look at that by high-risk versus standard risk cytogenetics, ISS stage, or age. Now GMMG HD7 was a randomized phase three trial that was very similar in concept to the Griffin trial. So in this case, patients received the backbone of bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone with or without esituximab prior to autologous stem cell transplant. So patients received six cycles of induction therapy, then went on to transplant, they then underwent a second randomization of lenalidomide with or without esituximab as their maintenance therapy. This analysis was the initial primary endpoint of MRD negativity at the end of six cycles of induction therapy. And what you can see here is that the MRD negative rate for those patients that received four drug therapy prior to transplant was 50% in contrast to 35.5% for those that received three drug therapy. And as you can see on the right-hand side of the slide, the rates of very good partial responses or better also favored the four-drug therapy over the three-drug therapy. And we certainly will be looking very forward to seeing longer-term results of the study to see if this increased depth of response translates into improved progression-free survival. Well, thanks very much, Dr. Voorhees. Let's go back to our case here, which is, again, a 70-year-old patient with RISS2 symptomatic standard risk myeloma. Sounds like he has a good performance status and is open to high-dose therapy. So based on the data that you've presented and some other recent developments in the field, do you think that a patient like this should get a stem cell transplant? Yeah, so this is obviously a, a, a controversial uh, area, and um, you know, but at the end of the day, I think you know everyone would agree that upfront autologous stem cell transplant improves progression-free survival. So this has been shown in you know a number of studies at this point, including the the Forte trial, uh, the IFM two thousand and nine trial. More recently, uh, at ASCO and EHA this year, the determination trial, the bottom line is that progression-free survival is improved with upfront autologous stem cell transplant. Now, we don't necessarily see an improvement in overall survival, and in part, that is related to the fact that some patients, not all, but some patients who defer transplant can be transplanted later in their disease course. 
But from my perspective, uh, autologous stem cell transplantation, high-dose melphalan chemotherapy is better tolerated when it's done as part of initial therapy and it leads to the most durable remission. So that is our preferred approach. But for a standard risk patient who wants to collect stem cells and defer transplant to first relapse, that is not a wrong decision. Yeah, thanks for that perspective. I, I can put in my two cents. Uh, what I can tell you is that for a standard risk patient, my feeling is that if someone like this achieves a complete remission and is MRD negative, they're going to have a great outcome whether they do the transplant or not. And so I offer them the option to either harvest and hold or to go ahead and do the transplant. Either way, you're going to get maintenance out back. And the people that I do more strongly recommend to do transplant are folks with high-risk disease or people with standard risk disease who don't achieve that CR and MRD negativity. Now, we don't have randomized data to demonstrate that, but at least in retrospective analyses, it seems that if you get to MRD negativity with or without a transplant, you're going to do well. I think a second question is about the goals of therapy. And Jenny Alstrom, uh, you're a patient who's gone through induction chemotherapy. From a patient perspective and a patient advocate perspective, what are the goals of therapy that people like Pete and I and other healthcare providers out there should be considering beyond just knocking the myeloma down to the lowest level possible? Well, it's a good question. There's so many issues that you both brought up. Um, in this newly diagnosed setting, this is a setting where there are a lot of choices to make. And um, you need, really need to have a myeloma expert on your team. So that's, it, in terms of setting goals for therapy, the answer to that is it depends. You know, I was 43 when I was diagnosed, but in this example with a 70 year old, they may have much different life goals. So some of it depends on your approach to um, your outcomes. Do you, are you shooting for a cure? Are you shooting, shooting for optimal quality of life? Do you travel? Do you work? Uh, there are so many issues that you need to discuss with your doctor as you're starting this new therapy. And I just wanna reiterate the importance of what you said earlier. The first line therapy is your most important line of therapy. And the challenge is getting a newly diagnosed patient to find a myeloma expert that can help decide together um, this optimal first therapy. It's just, that's, that's a big challenge because usually patients are shocked by the news, don't know they need a specialist, and there's a lot of data showing that if you are seen by a myeloma specialist, you'll have a better outcome. So you can have this type of conversation about therapy goals with them. And just to put in a shameless plug, your Health Tree Foundation is one of the places that can help put patients together with myeloma specialists and really make it easy. Isn't that right? Uh, you know, when I was diagnosed, there was no online myeloma specialist directory. And that seemed like such a basic idea to me. So as we created some of these tools for patients, we looked at every perspective. You know, what is a newly diagnosed patient trying to go through? Well, they need a directory. So we have all the myeloma specialists in the United States listed in that directory, those who are both seeing patients and performing research. 
And you can find that on the um, mylomacrowd.org or the healthtree.org forward slash myeloma site. We're kind of moving things over as we speak. Um, and, and you can find those. You can also, for a newly diagnosed patient, it's very helpful to have a mentor. So you can find a myeloma, myeloma coach as well uh, and more experienced patient who has been through this experience already to help you through that. And they will likely refer you to a myeloma specialist or ask that. When patients call me and say, what's the one thing that I can do as a newly diagnosed patient? I always say you need to find a myeloma specialist first. Have that person on your care team because these are critical life-saving decisions that you're making. Um, and you can use that directory to, to do that. Now, I think those are great points. And previous data that were published suggests that the private practice hematology oncology physicians probably see on average about one or two new myeloma patients per year and manage about five or six per year. So they don't have the same level of experience as one of the specialists. Uh, Pete, let me go back to you. You presented data on triplets and quadruplets and also on two different quadruplets. So for a patient like Richard here, would you recommend a triplet or a quadruplet? And for the moment, let's assume that you say a quadruplet, would you suggest going with DARA VRD or ESA VRD? So I think for a, a fit patient, uh, a four drug regimen does afford them, you know, the uh, best chance of a longer remission uh, and certainly a deeper remission. Uh, so I generally uh, advocate uh, for the four-drug approach. I do think adding a CD38 antibody to an immunomodulatory drug, proteasome inhibitor DEX uh, platform, is something that can be managed. Um, yes, there's a slightly increased risk of respiratory tract infections and low neutrophil counts, but those are things that we can typically manage quite well. As far as you know, the optimal CD38 antibody, I think both daratumumab and isotuximab are terrific uh, antibodies uh, that have performed well. It's not clear to me that one is better than the other at this point. Well, I would agree with you on the quad versus triplet. I think that if those of you at home are still waffling, one option to consider is I would especially strongly recommend to do this in people with high disease burden because it is tougher to get somebody into a stringent CR if they're starting off with a lot of myeloma versus a little bit of myeloma. And then even though the high risk data are still not as good as the standard risk, I would definitely argue in favor of a quad there because again, MRD negativity and CR are probably especially important. And then, Pete, one other question is you presented the Cassiopeia data and talked about DARA and maintenance. What would you do in a patient now who is coming out from transplant? Let's say somebody like Richard here. Would you give them LEN as a maintenance or would you do LEN with DARA? So I think that that's a great question. You know, I always say, you know, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. So if you want to try and recapitulate the results of the Griffin trial, it probably makes the most sense to do it as it was done in the study until we have additional studies that tell us that that's not necessary. So as a purist, I would say, you know, use the daratumumab with the lenalidomide for the first two years of maintenance therapy. 
That said, the Cassiopeia trial suggests that if you've gotten the CD38 antibody as part of your induction and post-transplant consolidation, the antibody may not be necessary in maintenance. I, I think we're comparing apples to oranges there to some extent because you know half the patients got absolutely no maintenance therapy and the other half got just single agent CD38 antibody. I think that um, the GMMG study that I alluded to before in the second randomization will really help us understand whether it makes sense to incorporate a CD38 antibody with lenalidomide as part of the maintenance therapy. And the SWOG study uh, should also provide some insights there uh, as well. So for now, uh, a minimum of lenalidomide, um, but I think you could make a strong argument to add the CD38 antibody for the first two years. Well, thanks very much for that commentary. Jenny, let's maybe go to you for a moment. As a patient and an advocate, we have, as you've seen now, really wonderful upfront therapy options. What do you think about patients getting the standards of care, or should they make an effort to look for clinical trials, even in the newly diagnosed setting? No, so this is an issue that we created a whole tool around because you have 80% of patients getting treated in the community oncology clinic. And as you can see, we have a lot of programs to help educate and support them. Um, but for, for this particular question, like what do I do for therapy, either at first line or later, uh, we built something called the Health Tree Cure Hub. So in that, you can find twins that are similar to you and see what their outcomes were. Um, you can also see decision, um, it's, it's kind of like a manual decision support tool at this point. We're automating a little bit in the future, but we've asked myeloma experts how they would treat a newly diagnosed standard risk patient like Richard or a newly diagnosed high risk patient that has greater need. And then they have weighed in with their different treatment options. Um, you could try the triplet, you could try the quad. Um, additionally, inside this tool, Health Tree Care Hub, you can see clinical trial options. And even though a clinical trial may not be something a newly diagnosed patient might consider, it may be an excellent option, especially for high-risk patients, because um, if the current standard, you know, you're getting the triplet or even the quad and a stem cell transplant with maintenance, um, you're still seeing less of an outcome for those patients. So there may be a clinical trial using something we're going to talk about next, some of these earlier immunotherapies that could be used earlier in lines of therapy that might address that high-risk nature of your disease, and you can always go back to these standard protocols uh, later along in the lines of therapy. But those are some of the tools that I needed um, as a patient, and we created, and it's very unique that, that we have these decision support type, type tools. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Let's go back to our case with Richard and maybe tweak it a little bit. And let's say now, for the sake of argument, that Richard is not a transplant candidate. He was 70 previously. Let's say that he actually presented when he was 80. How does that change things? Well, we do have DRD or daratumumab with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, which is a very effective and now standard triplet from the Maya trial. We do have RVD or in some cases a reduced dose and schedule called RVD light, which can be used. So once again, you've got this question of proteasome inhibitors or antibodies with len and dex. 
So how would conversations with patients and patient support strategies really change in the non-transplant setting? Uh, Pete, maybe let's start with you. How would you approach this with, let's say again, an 80-year-old Richard? Richard. I think in general, the CD38 antibodies uh, pair up nicely with lenalidomide and dexamethasone from a side effect perspective. I think bortezomib does as well. You know, its Achilles heel obviously is the peripheral neuropathy. On the other hand, I think when you add the CD38 antibody to lenalidomide and dexamethasone, you do see more problems with low neutrophil counts um, and perhaps a slightly increased risk of infection as well. So I think you have to have that conversation uh, with the patients. You know, at the end of the day, whether you add daratumumab or bortezomib to the lenalidomide and dexamethasone backbone, you're improving overall survival. So they're both terrific uh, combinations. So it's really a matter of going through the nuances of their specific case, what medical conditions that they may bring into the scenario that may influence which of the two strategies that you take. So for example, if you have a diabetic patient who already has neuropathy, you know, you're going to gravitate towards the daratumumab, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone backbone. If you have somebody who has a very low white blood cell count as part of their initial presentation of multiple myeloma, you may gravitate towards the lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone regimen. Yeah, definitely. So let's just conclude with some take-home messages, if you will, on CD30 antibody safety. These antibodies, as both Pete and Jenny have mentioned, have been really extremely well tolerated, but they do target not just myeloma plasma cells, but also normal plasma cells. And many patients do have low levels of gamma globulins. In some cases, you may consider prophylactic IVIG, or especially in patients who've had several infections. And of course, the infections need to be treated aggressively. We talked earlier about the use of sub-Q DARA, which really has largely replaced the IV because of a much lower rate of infusion reactions. You do need to premedicate for the CD38 antibodies and typically acetaminophen, diphenhydramine, a little bit of DEX or a different steroid, and Montelukast are typically used. Cytopenias are a little bit more common with the CD38 antibodies, so monitor the counts, especially in somebody who's got a lot of myeloma at the beginning, and also if you're ever using a pomalidomide combo. And then, as Jenny mentioned, the antibodies to CD38 do reduce reactions to COVID vaccines, so do try to make sure that folks are vaccinated ahead of time, if at all possible, and also consider prophylactic strategies in these patients. So now let's move on to the relapsed and or refractory setting and how we may be able to use antibodies there and also how we can continue building our professional patient partnership. So as before, we'll start with a case. This time it's Margaret who has a history of myeloma. She's now 75, originally had ISS stage 2, has some coronary artery disease, and her mobility is not optimal. Up front, got VRD induction, transplant, and then lend maintenance with a complete remission. But about three years later, she did progress, and that led to use with DARA, POM, and DEX. 
which is leaving there a very good partial remission. But that only lasted for two years, and then a rising M-protein led to use of carfilzomib with cyclophosphamide and DEX, and then nine months later, the patient has again progression. And unfortunately, this is a not uncommon scenario where the duration of benefit from each subsequent line of therapy seems to be less and less. So in terms of questions to address here, Pete, what kinds of options do you look for in people who have progressed on our maintenance? So I think that that's a, a fantastic uh, question. You know, I think you've got several choices in this space. Um, you know, you're really choosing between a pomalidomide or a proteasome inhibitor-based uh, combination, oftentimes a three-drug combination in this particular circumstance. You know, so we've certainly seen the use of pomalidomide and dexamethasone with daratumumab and esetuximab in this space, which is very highly appropriate uh, for somebody progressing on lenalidomide. I think that there's an increasing body of data utilizing carfilzomib, uh, that proteasome inhibitor with dexamethasone, with either daratumumab or esetuximab. And for those patients with lenalidomide refractory disease, those triplets are performing uh, particularly well. Um, in, in my practice, you know, for somebody who's a carfilzomib candidate, uh, my preference is to use carfilzomib and dexamethasone with a CD38 antibody in the patient progressing on lenalidomide uh, maintenance therapy. Uh, but, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that it's infusional therapy, so there is some treatment fatigue that you have to take into account. And uh, the oral drug pomalidomide, you know, and dexamethasone with either daratumumab or esetuximab are highly appropriate as well. Yeah, great. So as you mentioned, these are the NCCN guidelines, and I think you really covered all of them pretty well, but they consist of a number of different triplets, including CAR, Lendex, daratumumab with a number of different doublets, and a number of POM-DEX and also bortezomib-DEX-based triplets. And these are for one to three prior lines. And there also are other options, including ELO, Lendex, Selenexor, Bortez-DEX. And in some cases, you can even do a doublet, such as something like high-dose carfilzomib with dexamethasone. There is really good data supporting the use of antibody triplets in the relapsed refractory setting. Pete mentioned carfilzomib dex as a partner, and we have data from the CANDOR study that looked at KD versus DARA-KD, and what you can see is an almost doubling in the median progression-free survival. And we also have the Apollo data that looked at POMDEX versus sub-Q DARA with POMDEX. And again, you have an almost doubling of the progression-free survival from around 6.9 months to 12.4 months. We also have support for use of esetuximab in this setting. One combination is with POMDEX, and that came from the ICARIA study, which again almost doubled median PFS from 6.4 to 11.5. 
And we also have the Ikema data that looked at Cardex plus or minus Isatuximab. And although we don't even yet have the median PFS from the ISA-KD regimen, what we do know is that the hazard ratio would suggest that the PFS will probably approximately double. For those of you that like curves, these are updates from the Apollo study, which again is in lenalidomide refractory patients, so would be good for somebody that progresses on len maintenance. And again, this was POMDEX versus sub-Q DARA and POMDEX. And the most recent data, once again, show you a significant improvement with a hazard ratio of 0.64, which means almost a 40% improvement in the progression-free survival and overall response rate, VGPR rate, and CR rate were improved with the triplet compared with the doublet. Now, for patients that are later relapses, meaning more than three prior therapies, and towards the end, our patient Margaret does fall into that category, there are three therapies that are approved for people that have had four or more prior therapies, including belantamab mafodotin, which we discussed the mechanism of action earlier. And then now we have two BCMA-targeted CAR T-cells including Idacel as well as Siltacel. And then keep in mind for four or more prior therapy patients, if they've had two PIs and two IMIDs and their disease was refractory to both and an anti-CD38, you can also consider Selenexor and Dexamethasone. Getting back to Belantamab, these are updated data from DREAM2, which was the single-agent Belantamab mafodotin study, and you can see an overall response rate of 32%, which is really quite good considering how heavily pretreated these patients were, and a duration of remission of almost one year, again, in a very difficult-to-treat patient population. Moreover, it looks like if you combine Belamaf with other drugs, the efficacy can be substantially improved. And here are some data from the Algonquin study that looked at POMDEX in addition to Belamaf. And now you can see response rates in the 80s to 90% or even higher range with two-thirds to even three-quarters of patients achieving a very good partial remission, which really, I think, is quite encouraging. The DREAM6 study is looking at this in a number of different settings, and there are combinations of Belamaf with Lendex and also with other drugs. I think one of the important take-home messages here is that the drug can be given at a reduced dose, and potentially with less frequent dosing, the initial standard frequency was every three weeks, here, every four weeks is being used, and now sometimes even less frequent dosing. And that does help from the perspective of ocular toxicity, while it looks like the efficacy is maintained or perhaps even enhanced. So let's go back to Margaret, our patient again. And we talked about, Pete, the fact that she had progression on our maintenance and you thought that Dara-Pomdex was a reasonable therapy to use at that point. 
and then a rising M protein. So what do you think about something like carfilzomib, cyclophosphamide, and DEX, and what would you do at progression afterwards? Yeah, so in this particular case that you uh, bring up, so you know, they, they've developed resistance to daratumumab, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone. So then you go to the carfilzomib platform, and carfilzomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone is a highly appropriate third-line therapy for this patient. And then they progress. So what do you do after that? You know, one of the challenges that we have here with the way that approvals are currently, you know, constructed is that we now have a patient who's refractory to daratumumab, best-in-class proteasome inhibitor, carfilzomib, best-in-class immunomodulatory drug, pomalidomide, yet they've only had three prior lines of therapy. So technically speaking, they haven't had four more prior lines of therapy to make them eligible for belantamab, mafodotin, or for one of the BCMA-targeted CAR T-cell therapies. That said, I think a BCMA-targeted strategy for that patient is absolutely the right thing to do. Can you go back and recycle drugs? I think to some extent, a yes in this particular case. For somebody who's progressing in the face of carfilzomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone, I might go back to a pomalidomide-based uh, platform as a fourth line of therapy and start working to get the patient onto a clinical trial or commercial CAR T-cell therapy or belantabab mafodotin, for example. But I would put a new spin on it. So I would combine pomalidomide and dexamethasone with, say, elituzumab or, you know, potentially uh, selinexor. And then you mentioned about reusing therapies, which is always something to keep in mind. Do you think that in the first relapse, let's say that uh, Margaret had been a little bit more mobile and had a PS of zero, would you ever have considered repeating a stem cell transplant in someone like that, assuming that that was consistent, of course, with her treatment goals and wishes? Yeah, so I think for those patients that have achieved at least three years of remission from the time of the transplant, you know, to progression, you know, for those on, say, lenalidomide maintenance therapy, and they did well with their first stem cell transplant, I think it's important to have that conversation because, yes, they would potentially be uh, eligible for a, a second stem cell transplant. Also, in this particular case, you know, the patient could get a bortezomib-based strategy in the second line. You know, the patient was progressing on lenalidomide. They had been exposed to bortezomib in the past, but their disease is not resistant to bortezomib. So they could have gotten daratumumab with bortezomib and dexamethasone in the second line as well. So yes, you can go back to, to drugs, but once the disease has developed resistance to specific classes, yes, you can go back to them, put new spins on them, but I don't find that those remissions tend to be highly durable. So, Pete, I think that's a great coverage of what the options are. You mentioned going on to BCMA-targeted therapies. I've sometimes used Selinexor in these patients and in some cases with DEX or in some cases with bortezomib and DEX. And especially with once-weekly Selinexor, I found it to be very well-tolerated and active. What's your experience with that combination and drug? Yeah, so I agree with you. I think that when Selinexor is combined into a triplet platform, whether that's with bortezomib and dexamethasone or carfilzomib and dexamethasone or pomalidomide and dexamethasone, 
when you're using that once weekly dose, ranging anywhere from 60 to 100 milligrams a week, that is far better tolerated than the dosage that was used in the initial STORM trial where Selenexor was given 80 milligrams twice a week uh, for those patients. And there, the side effects of fatigue, loss of appetite, the other gastrointestinal side effects, and the low blood count issues uh, tend to be highly problematic. But I think as a transition to, say, a BCMA-targeted strategy, a Selenex or a triplet uh, can oftentimes uh, buy you time to get to that next step. Excellent. And I think in just a little bit, we'll talk about bispecifics as well, which are another exciting option. I think let's go to Jennifer now. Jenny, what do you think about strategies that we need to consider and utilize to support patients in this multiply relapsed setting? Yeah, well, this patient's situation is um, like, if this were me, I would be a little bit alarmed that I'm having shorter um, outcomes at each line of therapy. So once patients are a little more savvy with their um, disease, they, they can and should be a little more educated to look at different options. And that's I would reiterate the Helltree Cure Hub at Relapse is a great place to look because now you can see what clinical trials you can qualify for that's personal to you. You can see what next treatment options are. And if you don't have a myeloma specialist that's um, very nuanced in the care, you can see how myeloma experts would treat and then move forward from there. I think um, talking to peers also and looking at, at twins through the COACH program and the Helltree Cure Hub are are very valuable because you can look ahead and see, oh, this patient looks just like me. What did they do? How long did they, they you know, end up in a relapse situation? Did they become MRD negative? Those types of things. Um, that all helps with decision making. Because as you can see, there's so many different options. It's very challenging in the myeloma space um, to cover all the options. You know, what do you do next? And how do you prioritize a certain triplet combination over a different triplet combination um, but if this were me as a patient, um, I would look to the BCMA-targeted therapies sooner rather than later. Well, thank you very much. That's valuable insight. In terms of the BCMA therapies, uh, we mentioned Bellamaf and reviewed some of the data. Pete, maybe you can cover some of your experience and the experience of the field at large in terms of ocular toxicity with this drug. Absolutely. So what we're showing here are uh, data on the corneal uh, side effects uh, that we're seeing in the DREAM2 trial in the arm, you know, that essentially, uh, you know, was the arm that, that was the FDA uh, approved dose and schedule of 2.5 milligrams per kilogram given intravenously once every three weeks. And what you can see here is that 72% of patients had physical exam findings in their corneas of this uh, corneal toxicity or keratopathy, I typically tell patients if they get two doses or more, we will see keratopathy on exam. So it is a ubiquitous uh, side effect. Now, thankfully, not everybody has symptoms related to these physical exam findings. That said, you know, at least in this study, 56% of patients did experience some eye-related side effects, whether that's blurred vision, dry eyes, or sensitivity to light only 20% or a little under 20% of patients had severe changes in vision, you know, with the potential to negatively impact their quality of life. 
And with close monitoring and appropriate dose holds and dose reductions, in this study, only 3% of patients actually discontinued therapy because of these eye side effects. So very common, but they can be managed appropriately with dose holds and dose uh, modifications uh, as needed. So as I mentioned before, the dosing is 2.5 milligrams per kilogram intravenously over 30 minutes uh, once uh, every three weeks. Uh, prescribers must be certified with um, the program by enrolling and completing training in a REMS program. The patients must be enrolled in this REMS program and comply with uh, monitoring. You know, it's important that we counsel patients about the risk of the corneal side effects and the need for ophthalmic examinations prior to each dose. We recommend preservative uh, free artificial tears at least two to four drops in each eye four times daily. I usually tell patients to do it every hour to every other hour while they're awake. Um, a cooling eye mask may be helpful at the time of infusion. We instruct patients not to wear contact lenses while they're on therapy with belantamab mafidotin. And it's absolutely critical that you adhere to the guidelines for dose holds with uh, higher grade uh, corneal side effects. So the ophthalmic examinations have to occur uh, prior to each dose. So at baseline, it must be within three weeks uh, of the first dose. And with follow-up uh, dosing, uh, those exams have to be at least a week after the previous dose and within two weeks of the next dose. I try and get those exams done closer to dosing so we really know exactly what's going on with the corneal side effects uh, prior to the next dose. So let's move on to preparing patients and professionals for BCMA and non-BCMA bispecific antibodies. Well, excellent, thank you, Pete. And I think we're gonna go back to our case, which was Margaret again. And let's say for the sake of argument that on her last line of therapy from the previous slide, she had gotten belantamab mafidotin and maybe after some response had a progression. So let's talk about other options that could be considered in this setting. And I think one of the more exciting categories of drugs are the bispecific antibodies. And Pete, I'll turn it back over to you to review some of the introductory background and data. So this is a very crowded space. And what we'll do is we'll talk about uh, teclistamab. Uh, this is an off-the-shelf T-cell redirecting bispecific antibody. Uh, Dr. Orlowski previously showed the mechanism of action of this particular agent. So on the one hand, uh, it binds to myeloma cells through B-cell maturation antigen, and on the other hand, binds to CD3 on T-cells and activates those T-cells in the presence uh, of the myeloma. Uh, teclistamab um, was tested in the first in human Majestic 1 study. The recommended phase two dose for teclistamab monotherapy that was seen in the study in relapsed refractory multiple myeloma patients was 1.5 milligrams per kilogram given as a subcutaneous injection on a weekly basis with two initial step-up doses of 0.06 and 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. So Majestic 1, again, was a first-in-human uh, study in highly, uh, heavily pretreated, triple-class uh, exposed uh, myeloma patients. And what you can see here at the recommended phase 2 dose, 
The overall response rate was 63%, and the overwhelming majority of those responses were very good partial responses and complete responses, and in fact, a quarter of the patients achieved MRD negativity, and given the fact that the patients had received a median of five to six prior lines of therapy, this is really quite an impressive result. This is data uh, that was presented at ASCO for those patients that had previously been exposed to a BCMA-targeted therapy. This may have been the antibody drug conjugate belantamab mafodotin or a BCMA-targeted CAR T-cell therapy such as Idacel or Siltacel or other BCMA-targeted CAR T-cell therapy in the context of a clinical trial. And what you can see here on the left-hand side of the slide is that for those patients that had previously been exposed to BCMA-targeted antibody drug conjugates, the response rate to teclistimab was a very impressive 55%, very much in line with what was seen in the general cohort of 63% response rate. For those that had been exposed to BCMA-targeted CAR T-cell therapy, the response rate was 53%. Um, and then when you combine both of these cohorts, the overall response rate is 52.5%. So clearly, you can see activity of a BCMA-targeted bispecific antibody in a patient who's progressed after BCMA-targeted antibody drug conjugate or CAR T-cell therapy. And on the right-hand side of the slide here, you know, for those patients that have been on teclistimab longer, you can see some of these patients are holding their remissions for over a year. Magnetism MM1 was a study of Elranatinab uh, for patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. This is a humanized, uh, bispecific antibody targeting uh, BCMA, again, in a heavily pretreated uh, patient population. Uh, this is the dose escalation that was utilized in this trial, as you can see on the right-hand side of the slide. And they did uh, have an expansion cohort uh, in this particular trial, going up to a dose of 76 milligrams given on a weekly basis. And what you can see here is that the overall response rate was 64%, very similar to what we saw with teclistimab. And for those patients that have been on study longer, you can see remissions that are lasting beyond one and a half years. So very exciting uh, data with this BCMA bispecific antibody as well. Um, this is in a cohort of patients who had received prior BCMA-targeted therapy. Again, getting at this notion that patients who've had prior BCMA-targeted therapy can respond well to a BCMA-targeted bispecific antibody. There are a number of bispecific antibodies that are currently in development. I've mentioned two of the BCMA-targeted bispecific antibodies, elranatinab and teclistimab, but there are others, AMG701, uh, HPN217, uh, Regenerons5458, and AbbVie's383. Uh, but there are also bispecifics that target other surface markers on myeloma cells, including telquetimab, which targets the protein GPRC5D expressed on the surface of myeloma cells, and then there's sevastimab, which targets another plasma cell-specific marker called FCRH5. Excellent. Well, let's go back to our patient, Margaret, who progressed on Bellamaf. What would you think about the next therapy? Let's assume for the sake of argument that you have a BCMA cell surface expression test available and you test her myeloma cells and they still make BCMA, what would be the next 
quiver, the next arrow, I guess you should say, in the quiver that you would use here? Yeah, so I think in this particular case, you know, I would be very interested in using a, a BCMA CAR T-cell therapy. Um, now, we've got two commercially approved uh, BCMA-targeted CAR T-cells, Idacel and Siltacel. So if the patient uh, was fit and uh, we felt they were a good candidate, that would certainly be a wonderful option. Uh, teclistamab could potentially receive an FDA approval as early as August. Um, if that is available, I think we've got clear data that a BCMA-targeted bispecific could work very well for someone who's progressed after belantamab, mafodotin. So teclistamab or one of the other BCMA-targeted uh, agents, uh, bispecific antibodies, would be a terrific approach. I think a clinical trial in this space would be highly appropriate. A lot of our patients, you know, in this exact clinical scenario have gone on to the bispecific antibody uh, telquetamab, and we're seeing very nice responses with that agent as a standalone therapy or in combination with daratumumab with or without palmalidomide. I think any of those would be terrific choices. I think, of course, the main advantage of the CAR T-cell approach is that you have a period of treatment, but once folks get past that cytokine release syndrome and risk of ICANs, you get to a point where, at least as of right now, they're not on any continuous therapy, which often can be the first time for years that these people have really been off of treatment. And so that's, I think, something that can be really attractive. Uh, Jenny, what do you think about what you're hearing from patients about CAR T's and bispecifics and also how can people who are looking for either standard of care or clinical trial therapies in this setting, how can they weave their way through the maze to get to the cheese at the end? Yeah, no, CAR-Ts are very exciting and bispecifics are exciting as well, but this is the, the opportunity of clinical trials and this is why I think you need to have discussions with your um, physician every time you relapse, not just at third relapse or whatnot. Um, you need to be talking about what clinical trials because you may be able to access some of these therapies early on. I mean, availability for CAR-T right now is very challenging. There's a waiting list and hopefully those issues will get solved so more patients can get that therapy. Um, so, you know, without an approval for bispecifics right now, clinical trials are the only venue that patients have to get through that. So um, as many times as you can discuss clinical trials, you can. But also what I mentioned earlier in the Health Tree Cure Hub is that we have a clinical trial finder. So instead of going to clinicaltrials.gov, and looking at this list of 450 open clinical trials, you can see clinical trials that are specific to you based on your prior lines of therapy, your genetics, your responses to your prior therapy, what you became refractory or relapsed after. Um, and then you can see a personalized list. And actually, when I was trying to make a decision, that's what I did. I spent several hours on, on the site looking, and I joined a clinical trial. So it was... It, it is a great option for patients as as we wait for these approvals that hopefully get moved up in earlier lines of therapy. Well, excellent. Thank you, Jenny. And I'm hoping that many people will start accessing your site even more than they already have after this program. 
Before we wrap up, let's just give a few practical points on BCMA by specifics, since as you heard from Pete, we're hopeful that the first one of these may be available later this year. The two main toxicities to keep in mind that may be a little bit different from the standard chemotherapeutics and immunotherapeutics that we use. One is cytokine release syndrome, which typically is grade one or two, although there can be an occasional grade three event. And all of these do tend to resolve without treatment, discontinuation, or dose reduction, at least in the teclistamab database so far. There also is something called ICANS, which is immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome. And five patients on the teclistamab study had gotten this in a total of nine events. Most of these were grade one or two and fully resolved and no treatment discontinuations were needed, but it is something that should be given at a center and by a practitioner who has experience in this area. We also do see cytokine release syndrome after L-ronatumab in addition to teclistamab, and here are some of the data there. Once again, almost all of it is grade one or two and can be reduced by priming, which is essentially the process of giving a low dose to start with, then an intermediate dose, and then finally the higher dose. And you can get cytopenias, injection site reactions, diarrhea, and fatigue with all of these. But definitely the bispecifics, I think, are going to be an exciting part of our therapeutic armamentarium. I think our final take-home messages would be for CD38 antibodies. These have really improved outcomes for patients, both in newly diagnosed as well as in the relapsed and refractory setting as part of triplets and maybe in the future as part of quadruplets. And probably both Pete and I would agree that the earlier you use the CD38 antibody, the better, and that using it in frontline, especially for transplant ineligible patients, where sadly some of them may not be able to get a second line therapy, you want to make sure to give the best agents first. In terms of Belamaf, really an excellent activity both alone and in combination. You do have to do this with an experienced ophthalmologist to be able to manage the ocular toxicity, but really an excellent drug with no risk of cytokine release essentially or ICANS. And then finally for the bispecifics, the first of which we hope to have available later this year. Response rates in very heavily pretreated patients look to be in the 60 to 70% range. There is cytokine release and ICANS possible, but our management tools are improving, and definitely these are therapies that should be considered, and I think will make a big difference in continuing to improve outcomes and overall survival. That concludes our exploration of antibody therapy in myeloma. Thanks again to Pete and Jenny for being part of this, and I hope that you found this activity informative and useful in your practice. Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and Health Tree Foundation. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. 
Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JPJ 860. This educational activity is supported by educational grants from GlaxoSmithKline and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC.